today, what we're going to do is we're going to get into the Sermon on the Mount again. And Tucker called this, and I love this, the first week he preached, he called it the Constitution of the Kingdom of God. And I believe that's what it is. That this message, if you turn to Matthew 5, by the way, this message, this Sermon on the Mount is the place where we look where Jesus reveals who he is and reveals his marching orders for his people, the kingdom of God, the new people of God in the New Testament. And so turn there. And uh, while you turn there, I'm just going to set up the context because I don't feel like I can get into my passage, which is already quite long. It's verse 21 to 37 um, without actually going back a little bit. So pray for me. This is going to be a long passage. Uh, I've got 36 minutes. So here's the deal. Matthew, what is it all about anyway? Matthew, if you follow it through from the early chapters, is all about the fulfillment of Jesus as the king of Israel. Okay, you go to chapter one and two, you're gonna find that that traces the genealogy of Jesus and it shows how he came to fulfill Israel's history and came out of Egypt just like Israel did. Then chapter three, you've got Jesus getting baptized in the Jordan River, right? What does that remind you of? That reminds you of the nation of Israel as they came out of Egypt, crossed over the Jordan River into the promised land. Then you've got chapter four. Jesus goes into the wilderness and he's tempted and he comes out. Unlike Israel, he passes the test perfectly. He beats Satan in the temptation. And then we get to chapter five. We have Jesus on a mount, just like in the Old Testament, we had Moses on Mount Sinai constituting the covenant of the Torah to Israel. Jesus goes on the mount to institute the covenant, the new covenant with his new people. So one guy, Tom Wright, puts it like this. He says, in Deuteronomy, the people came through the wilderness, arrived at the border of the promised land, and God gave them a solemn covenant. He listed the blessings and the curses that would come upon them if they were obedient or disobedient. And now Matthew has shown us Jesus coming out of Egypt through the water and the wilderness and into the land of promise. Here now is the new covenant. Okay, so this is what's happening. Jesus in the Beatitudes, when he said, blessed are you poor, okay? Blessed are you poor in spirit. Blessed are the merciful for you merciful, if you look in Luke. Blessed are you. When he says this, what he's doing is he's taking a motley crew of people from all over the Decapolis, the Galileans, the, the Jews that were not from Judea, not the religious ones, and he's gathering them together, the marginalized people, and he's saying, you now make up my people. This is my kingdom. This is different than the nation of Israel and that kingdom. And this becomes really clear, I think, when we trace back to the passage that John Whitaker covered in uh, Matthew 5, 13 to 16 on the salt and light. So if you want to, you can look at that. I have a little bit of a twist. Now, John did a great job. I'm not going to slate him here or anything like that. I talked to him in between services. So it's all good. It's all good. Um, but he did a great job. He pointed out the fact that Christians... Uh, being salt and light need to be valuable, useful, and necessary in the world. And that's so true. I totally believe that. However, I have a little bit of a slant on what Jesus is doing there that informs our uh, kind of discussion this morning. And that is this, that salt, it's, it's actually been, the salt part's been a hard interpretation for a lot of people. And that's because people come down on preservation, on, on all these sorts of things, on flavor. Should Christians be like the flavor in the world? Uh, I actually think it's saying something different. And, and I'll illustrate it this way. One commentator said that uh, men in the ancient world used to actually have um, bum bags, is what they call them in England. Do you know what a bum bag is? That's a fanny pack here. Okay, I just taught you some English, right? 
Um, so they had, they had these fanny packs and they would have salt in them. And as they would go and interact with each other, then if they wanted to make a business deal, they'd take a little bit of salt out of that fanny pack and they'd drop it in the other guy's fanny pack, which seems kind of weird to me, but this is what the commentator said. And so it, in that reality, the idea of it though was permanence. You think about it, you're not getting that grain of salt back from that bag unless you are get really weird and dig into the guy's fanny pack. So that's the idea, is the idea of permanence in the ancient world. And I think that that's backed up in the Old Testament. Look, I'm just going to read these for you. Numbers 18, verse 19. It says, whatever is set aside from the holy offerings that the Israelites present to the Lord, I give to you and your children as, a, as your regular share. It's an everlasting covenant of salt before the Lord for both you and your offspring. And then I think even more clear, 2 Chronicles 13:5 says, don't you know that the Lord, the God of Israel, has given the kingship of Israel to David and his descendants forever by a covenant of salt? So maybe you didn't think about that, that there's this idea of a covenant of salt in the Old Testament. Here's, so here's what I think Jesus is actually saying. Matthew 5:13. You are my new people by covenant of salt. I'm committing to you like Yahweh committed to Israel. And just like Israel was to be the light of the world, you as my new community will now be the light of the world as well. Okay? I think that that's accurate. And I think that it's important in the sense that what Jesus is doing here is instituting this new people and this new community. And I think all of the applications we're going to talk about today should not be taken just personally for our own lives, but be talked about in the context of the community of God's people. He's saying, I have a permanent bond with you as God's new people, okay? And I think that that's going on. And you can imagine then, and maybe some of you are like, wait, you're not teaching replacement theology. Now, listen, I didn't say there wasn't a future for Israel. Let's not get into that right now. Um, but what I am saying is that Jesus then sees this same kind of thing going on in our hearts and minds, sees the crash that's coming. People are like, wait, I thought Israel was the people of God. I thought the law, the Torah was what we were supposed to obey. And so Jesus preempts that in verse 17 to 20 that Noah covered last week. And he says, don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I didn't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That's my whole kind of mission here. So Jesus came to live perfectly the sonship of God. Israel was called the son in the Old Testament. Now Jesus is called the son. Jesus came to be the servant of God, Isaiah 42. And now Israel failed as a servant, but Jesus would be the perfect servant. Jesus came in all these ways to fulfill the nation of Israel's history the way it should have been, lived it out perfectly, went to the cross, died the death that we should have died, rose for giving us eternal life. And then now he says, whatever I do for you, I want to do through you. That's what it means to both receive the gift of God's righteousness, the imputed righteousness of Christ that he gives you, but then to have a righteousness that's exceeding the righteousness of the Pharisees means that you live it out, actually. So you can't do one of either thing. You can't say that righteousness is something that you can earn because the Bible is very clear about that. But you also can't say that righteousness is not something that you need to live out if you're part of Jesus' new people. The way of Jesus must be lived out. There's no compromise there. And that is, as one commentator said, a whole person behavior that accords with God's nature, God's will, and his coming kingdom. So, he left us hanging a little bit, verse 20 though, didn't he? He's like, you've got to have a righteousness more than the Pharisees more than the scribes. 
And for the Jews of that day, their minds would have been blown. It's like, that's like telling a Muslim, you've got to have more righteousness than the imam. That's like telling a Jewish guy, your rabbi needs to be under you. Okay, that's like telling some of us that look up to athletes or intellectuals that you have to be more intellectual, more athletic than all of these people that you look up to. And that should help us get a grip a little bit of what Jesus is saying. That's impossible. That's impossible. As much as I want to be like Mike, Jordan that is, I am not going to dunk at six foot one with old man calves, right? That's not going to happen. So I, I may want to be like, and it's not going to happen. Jesus is now going to point us to the reality of how that will happen. And I want to take us to a passage to show us how it will happen, that it was predicted in the Old Testament. Turn to Jeremiah 31, verse 31 to 34. This is where Jesus is going to not contradict the Old Testament, but take things a little deeper. Um, This is what the prophet Jeremiah said. He said this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I'll remember their sin no more. So Jeremiah says, there's coming a time when Messiah will put the Torah in the heart of the people that not just one person, but the community of God's people will receive this new heart that, that is promised as part of the new covenant. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing. Jesus examples, he models, he has the perfect heart towards God, the perfect uh, life towards God. And then he says, by his gift, I'm gonna give that to you. And then in verses 21, all the way through 37, and actually all the way through 48 in this chapter, he's gonna break down five or six, depending on how you count them, applications of the law to the heart. And it's gonna go head, heart, and hands. So head, the commandment of the Torah, heart, the true intention as interpreted by Jesus, and then hands, the true life application that we need to get out of this. So I think there's a lot for us all here today that we look at whether you need to learn something in your head and be reminded of the commands of God, whether you need to um, get the true intent because maybe you've missed it or whether you need to just say like, Lord, you need to put your periscope on me and apply this to my life. It's all here in this passage and it unpacks this righteousness that Jesus is talking about in verse 17 to 20. So, Having said all that, that's the big idea. Unpacking the righteousness that is greater than the righteousness of the religious leaders. And um, I, want you to, I want you to think of all that Jesus is going to talk about here. It, it, he's going to go from outward conformity and, and, he's, and he's going to bring it into uh, the idea of the heart. And why is that important? What's the, what's the overwhelming theme here? What is it? Because I struggled. I had a big passage here, 21 to 37. It's like, there's a lot of things that I could hit on. And and so maybe today we'll just kind of shotgun it. But here's the idea. What, it's the key. What is the core root problem with the Pharisees' righteousness and the scribes? What is it? Is it that their obedience is not being enough? They're not doing enough good works? Is it Something else. Well, I think that the core theme throughout this whole passage is that it's egocentric and that it's all about me. Jesus is not saying, don't 
Go to temple, don't read Torah, don't do offerings. And, and later on in this uh, sermon, he's not saying don't fast or don't do these things, don't pray. He's saying, yes, do all of these things. But the problem with the Pharisees is that their righteousness was ultimately all about themselves. That their religious deeds, that their life that was supposed to be for God was actually all meant to build up an image and something that they could proclaim their own goodness with. That's the problem. And what Jesus is saying, essentially, as he comes on the scene is, nope, I'm the king, it's all about me, and it's all about my new people that are going to live from the heart, not just from the outward, and not live to try to show themselves, prove themselves, do something like that. And he's going to cover murder and anger in verse 21, adultery, verse 27, divorce, verse 31, integrity, verse 33, retaliation, verse 38, and loving your enemies, verse 43. So he's going to cover everything. Let's start in verse 21. I think that this section is probably the most relevant for many of us in here. And this also provides a model for the rest of the sections that we'll cover today. So verse 21 says this, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar. First go be reconciled with your brother, then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to the court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. So Jesus is making contrasts, but they're not antithetical to the Old Testament. Make that clear. So he's not saying it said murder, okay? The different thing I want to say to you is this. He's saying it said murder, I want to take it deeper with you, okay? I want to take it deeper. So it's contrasting, but and the words of Jesus here are quite bodacious, so to speak, because no rabbi ever would say, the Torah says, and I say to you, without actually getting stoned and getting killed. So Jesus very clearly is making a claim here to be the king of Israel, to be God. And so when he says this, he's going to say in every single one of these things we'll cover today, he's going to say the statement from the Torah, this was the sixth commandment, and then he's going to give the true intent, and then he's going to give the true application, head, heart, hands of his community, right? He takes it from the head to the heart and then to the hand, and here's why. If we're going to be God's people together as a church, there are all sorts of things that are going to break up this community. There are going to be all sorts of things that just naturally, like not even at the, at, just at the surface level. Like, I don't like you. I don't like the way you look. It's just very simple, like stylistic, worship style. There could be all sorts of things that break up the community of God's people. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. Underneath all of that is like this massive, like mountain of stuff in our hearts. And this is happening all the time. And so Jesus has to go from the superficial, yeah, I don't murder people. Good job, super holy guys. You don't murder people. Like none of us would say, except for a very few people, right? And I know that is the case sometimes that, hey, I didn't murder anyone today. That's a good thing. Of course, that's a good thing. But there's this mountain underneath that that is what Jesus is talking about in this that, that prevents the abundant life for his community to walk in the way of Jesus. And so if we're gonna live in his way, if we're gonna 
bump up against each other because of these things, then we're going to have to have those mountains from our hearts taken out by his grace. So, murder. By the way, Jesus speaks very directly. And so I'm okay with that because I'm kind of a direct person. All right, but if I hit you this morning with something, if Jesus hits you like, hey, about your anger, about your lust, about whatever, just know that's Jesus, that's not me, that's his style. I'm okay with it, but it might be tough for some of you, so hang in there. Um, Jesus is not grading these things. So as he says, look, if you've got anger, and then if you insult, and if you say raka or fool or blockhead, as some people would call it, he's not like saying there's different levels of uh, ways that you could have anger. He's saying basically this, and, and this gets to the core premise of what I'm talking about this morning, that in 99% of the cases where I have anger with people, and I can say this from personal experience, in 99% of the cases, the problem is me. The problem is, just like the Pharisees are egocentric about their religion, I want to be egocentric about my kingdom on this earth. That's the reality. That 99% of the time, it's about me. Um, one British theologian, uh, G.K. Chesterton, there was an article in the paper in, in London that was saying, hey, write in, we want your solutions to what the problem in the world is. And he wrote in very simply, he said, dear sirs, I am, okay, I am. And that's a great answer, and it gets to the heart of where we're going, that, that I get angry because someone's depriving me of something that I think I deserve. Whether that's respect, whether that is affection, whether that's road space, right? Man, I'm just gonna tell y'all that here in America, this is a problem, all right? This is a big problem, and I get really angry about it. Okay, um, in England, they have this thing. I'm just going to give you a little cultural thing. In England, they, they, you're driving, and they actually, if you, want, you put your turn signal on and you want to go into that lane, they flash their lights and say, yes, please go. Why can't we do that? You know, that would take away half the road rage that, that exists on this world. Anyway, so whether it's respect, affection, road space, loyalty, whatever you think that you need for your kingdom to be the center of the world, if somebody gets in the way of that, you're going to say to them, Jesus is saying, Raka, you fool, you idiot. And what is the problem? The problem is that what I'm doing there, the, the fundamental problem is that I am dismissing and degrading somebody else made in the image of God. See, it's a community of people, it's God's people, and when I am angry at you or you're angry at me, what I'm saying essentially is that you should die. You should be out of my kingdom, you should not hinder my kingdom, and I will push you away. Anyway, Jesus says, no, it's not about you being superior, it's not about that, it's about you actually learning to deal with the fact that it's not about you. Um, I want to illustrate this a little bit. I went to Disney World on a, on a vacation. I almost said holiday. On a vacation. And, um, you know, Disney World is the happiest place on earth, isn't it? Right? It's the happiest place on earth. Man, you have all the food at Epcot you want. You have all the rides. You have everything you could possibly want at Disney World. All the perfect environment. You know, what else could you want? Swimming, everything. You know, just, man, Great. It's not the happiest place on earth. Nope. <laughs> I'll just tell you, 
personal experience. We had a great vacation overall, but I even posted on Facebook and I'm like, hey, just to be real here, um, there has been some tense moments, right? Uh, my daughter wants, you know, five souvenirs and then I'm hangry and I'm just like, let's not talk about this right now. And you're impeding my kingdom because I don't want you to have this and you want your kingdom. And there's just all this kind of stuff. And then I saw an illustration of this in somebody else. There was a little kid by the uh, Big Thunder Mountain ride. And he's like pulling on this rope. And the grandpa kind of came up to him and he said, boy, you better stop that. Or I'm going to smack you. And I just thought, wow, okay, here we are. Anger expressed in the happiest place on earth. And so here's what we try to do sometimes. We try to make the perfect environment, the perfect family, the perfect everything so that we can be perfect people. But Jesus says, no, that doesn't work. It's deep down in your heart. It's right there. And he must deal with our egocentrism. He must deal with our attitude that I'm number one. And so he says, verse 23, look at that there. Again, he says, leave your gift before the altar. Here's the hands. The head is the commandment. The heart is the true intention. And the hands is, Jesus says, here's a practical expression for you that say that you are part of my community. You have some unreconciled relationships right now. You have some problems with anger with somebody. What do you need to do? We show up for worship here on Sunday morning. We show up in our gathering. Well, maybe it's time for us to get our phones out. This is the only reason I'll sanction it other than reading your Bible in in the service. Get our phones out and send a text to that person right now that's unreconciled in relationship with us. You know, I had to do this this past week in in, um, a couple different ways. I sent some emails. I sent some texts to people. I'm like, look, I can't get up and in good conscience preach this message if I'm not going to try to make an effort to reconcile with you. And thankfully, I had some good conversations, and they went really well. But all I'm saying is that Jesus says that your hands have to match the heart. And that means that it might be very difficult, and you might have some very difficult conversations. You might have to reckon with and release the anger that's in your heart. And look as well how this goes against our egocentrism as well. It says, if you remember that your brother has something against you, this is contrary to what we normally would do. Normally, it's like, well, if somebody has something against me, it's their job, it's their fault, they better come and tell me because how do I know? No, Jesus says you should be a type of person just like the father and the son are. How they looked at the world, John 3.16, and his heart went out in love with this chaos and confusion, and he sent his son. You should be looking. You should be wondering. You should be pursuing. You should be asking, where do I need to pursue reconciliation because of the broken relationships that anger has caused in our lives? That's what my people do. That's what my people do. Now, I, I do want to speak just for a second before we move on about this, is, is, is there is that 1%. There's the 1% where you have been wronged, where you have been abused, where you have been hurt. And sometimes that happens in church. Sometimes that happens in the community. And all I'll say to you in that regard is I'll say that Jesus did get righteously angry. And it was always about protecting people. And so... Jesus feels the heart of that anger, and if it is self, or if it is righteous indignation and not self-indignation, if it is righteous anger and good anger, then he actually empathizes with you. Okay, if somebody has betrayed you, if somebody has abused you, then Jesus empathizes. But what's the solution? 
I mean, I've grappled with this. Someone said recently, there's no hurt like church hurt. And I've experienced that, so I get it. And, and all I'll say, and this hinders people from community, but all I'll say is like, uh, as I've grappled with that, with things that have gone on in my own life, I have come to one answer. And that is to look at Jesus on the cross. And when he's on the cross, he says what? As his hands are pinned, as his feet are pinned, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Here's the reality I've come to. The only way it's possible that I can reconcile these things is that those people that did that to me or myself when I did it to them or whatever it may be, they they must not know what they did. And that's the only way. Mercy is another theme through Matthew's gospel. That's the only way I can have mercy is to think, you know what? This is such a roadblock. This is such an impasse. This is such a stone wall that the only explanation I can come up with is that actually they just can't see it. And that gives me mercy. That helps me be like Jesus. That helps me say, you know what? God, I've been in that place where I can't see my faults, where I'm blind and somebody had to point them out to me and I still didn't get it and I still didn't listen. And so God have mercy on my brother that doesn't see how they've hurt me, how they've done this. And then that releases you, that brings freedom. So, D.A. Carson said that it's more important to be clear of offense with all men than to show up on a Sunday morning and give religious worship to God. Give that up and go make it right. Right now, I said this, he didn't say this. Text that person, you need to text. I don't know if D.A. Carson does text or not. Um, People love to substitute ceremony for integrity and Jesus will have none of it. That's what he says. So let's move on to the next one. Look in verse 27. This is the one everyone's waiting for. Everyone's excited to talk about. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, then tear it out, throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Throw it away, for it's better than you, that you lose one of your members and your whole body go into hell. This is the seventh commandment. That's the Torah commandment. The intent of the heart, Jesus says, is around the word look. If you look with the intent to lust, the ESV says, if you look. It's, the original language there is like there's this deep longing gaze. It's a stare. It's the guy who is driving down the street and you watch his head go out the window, look at the girl as she passes and just put his tongue out like the wolf in the cartoons and pant. Okay, that's the idea of this original word is this long intentional look of staring with lust. Of course, you can see people's bodies and attractiveness and say, yes, that's an attractive man or woman or whatever it may be. That's just, you can't, not see things. But Jesus says this stare, this look, this gaze is what I'm talking about here. So when it talked about adultery in the Old Testament, the intent of the law was not just like, don't get in bed with people and sleep with them. The, the intent of the law was to have pure hearts. Why again? Just as in anger, what you're doing is slowly chopping away at somebody's humanity and killing them. You know, by the way, parents, just to, just to go back, that's a, a word of encouragement. We can do that to our kids. We can chop them away, and then they become the shell of the person that we thought that they should be, and that's part of our fault. James says the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of men. 
But in the same way with lust, what I'm saying is, I objectify you to be part of my pleasure principle. That my life is all about me experiencing less pain, more pleasure. And so therefore, when I look at people, they're in my kingdom. And they're toys that I play with to get gratification mentally, even if no one sees. And, And so what's the problem with that? Yeah, it's just in your mind, but ultimately it leads to a dehumanization and objectifying of other image bearers of God. And all you have to look at is the statistics for pornography, which is a billion dollar industry, costs more than the NBA, the NFL, the MLB, the cricket league in England, the rugby league, wherever it costs more than all of that combined. And then at the same time, look at the divorce and the rates in marriage. It's me at the center of everything again. It's me. Well, what do we do? You know, because it's a reality, and some of you might feel guilty right now, and some of it might be false guilt, because look, Martin Luther said this, we don't need to make the bowstring of Jesus' teaching here too tight. Um, you might be tempted, if, if anyone who is tempted to look at another with lust is eternally damned, we're all in trouble. And then he said, I cannot keep a bird from flying over my head, but I can certainly keep it from making a nest in my hair. Okay, so that's what we're talking about. Don't let things nest by the grace of God. Now, guys, there's another point that I, I stole from a, another commentator, I want to point out to you. Look at verse 28. Again, Jesus said, I say to you that everyone looks at a woman with lustful intent. Why would he say that? Is this a men's retreat that he's speaking at? This certainly isn't right now. Um, Is this a men's retreat? No, it's men and women, his new people, this new community. And why would he say to the men right here? Well, he says it to the men. This is what I believe. He says, don't look at a woman, and he makes it very clear he's talking to the men in the midst of the whole group to say this, my kingdom should be safe. My kingdom should be safe for women, for children, and men, it's on you to ensure as part of my new community that this is a safe place for people that are marginalized, that are weaker, that are, again, not that all women are weaker, please don't take me wrong, um, that, that are in danger more, and the statistics bear that out. Men, it has to be down to you. You set the tone for whether or not people are objectified in this community. You set the tone for whether or not we denigrate people in this community. I believe that's what Jesus is saying. Look, it's hard because in our culture right now, people don't even think adultery is a sin, right? There's like polyamory. People are just like, hey, just have multiple partners and all this kind of stuff. And, and, and so... The, the word from Jesus on adultery sounds stupid. And to say that now it's also in the heart that if you even lust after someone, you are sinful. But again, look at the way that human beings have been objectified. Christianity has the highest view of our bodies. Christianity has the highest view of other human beings. Christianity under Jesus is the one who honors everyone. So then what do we do with our hands? Jesus says, cut it off. Poke your eye out. I don't think he means literally, obviously. It's a form of speech, but it's a powerful one. It's a powerful form of speech. It's swift, decisive. Don't think about it. Get rid of it. Colossians 3, 5 says, put to death immorality. 
Don't like bite around it, taste it. Oh, maybe I could try that. Maybe I could watch this. Maybe I can play with this thing. Nope. Get rid of it. One commentator said, maybe you need to get a stupid phone instead of a smartphone. And I think that's good <laughs> advice. So here's the thing. Obviously, we are not to go out of this world. And some people take it the other way. And early church fathers did crazy things to try to beat their sin. Like the, the aesthetic monks would get prostitutes in their beds and like let them sleep there to prove that they could beat the temptation. That is stupid. Okay. But Origen did something else. I'm not even going to tell you what he did. He obeyed Jesus quite literally and it was not good. Um, but it wasn't his hand. Anyway, so we're going to move into the next verse because I don't want to camp on that. But what I would say is like this is radical action that you need to take with your sin. Radical action. Because it's affecting the community. It's affecting the next thing, which is your marriage. Verse 31, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Obviously, I don't have time to unpack all the ideas around divorce and remarriage. That's not going to happen this morning. If you have questions, we can talk about that. But here's the, the, the core thing again, and that is that the head is the commandment in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy uh, 24.1 might be in view here. And we're not sure what the uncleanness would be that he's talking about. Um, it was a vague reference even back then. And so, it, you know, it was like a stretch for them to get this kind of passed by Moses anyway. And then they had taken this and it's like, well, if your wife has burnt your toast, then go ahead and divorce her because, you know, she has an uncleanness. Jesus touches on that and clarifies it later in Matthew 19. And really, I think the Bible says that there's three reasons for divorce. There's adultery, there's abandonment, and I think as a subcategory of that, there's abuse in certain cases. And so all I'd say to you is that um, Jesus is talking about the fact and the reality that God is faithful to his marriage covenant with his people, this permanent covenant, and that is what should be in our hearts. And the majority, again, the 99% of the time is not abuse or adultery, or uh, abandonment. Normally, divorces happen. Why? For the same reason. It's all about me. It's all about my kingdom. It's not about what's good for everybody else in the community. So let's move on just for the sake of time, because I really want to hit this last one, verse 33. It says this, again, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything else comes from evil. It's a very important truth that you cannot make one hair white or black. I've discovered that, you know, over the last 10 years. Jesus here is getting at the heart of something that is hard for us in our culture to grapple with. How many of you take oaths on a regular basis? Any oath takers out there? Not really. Like maybe a cell phone contract, a mortgage, a refi, whatever it is. That's like the closest thing that we get to, but we're not used to oaths. We're in ancient Israel. This was a part of their culture. And it, it, it comes from several commandments of the Old Testament in the Torah that we, we don't have time to get into, but kind of Matthew is extrapolating this. Jesus is extrapolating this. And then a development in the rabbinical culture had come to the point where they would have rules around what kind of oaths you take. And you see this in Matthew 23. 
In Matthew 23, Jesus says his woes to the religious leaders. And one of them is that they would swear by the temple or by the gold of the temple. And they developed all these different ways to get around doing what they would say to God. And all of it was invoking the name of God so that they could still pass themselves off as spiritual people. Right? That's the idea. What is the heart of what Jesus is saying? The, the heart of what he's saying is that we distort our image in reality with other people to be something we're not. Okay? We distort our image. And I'm going to get into why that's bad for the community. Think about it. All I have to say is like four words. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. And we know. We know. It's a distorted reality. We present ourselves in such a way, and even, to be honest with you, as a preacher, it's a really hard thing to do. I'm just going to be honest while I'm here because Jesus wants me to be. Like, it's hard to do. Even as you're preaching, like, I'm not put across an idea that I'm somehow the super extra holy ones like the Pharisees. Honestly, I have all these struggles in my heart, anger, lust, you know, all of them are there, you know. I'm just as tempted to put an image of myself across that's not true. And at the root of all of that, the problem is it's not good for the community because what are you doing? You're trying to hide from one another. Go back to Genesis, like Jesus always does. Genesis, Adam and Eve, they sin. What happens? God's, you know, coming to them and he says, where are you? They're like, oh, we're hiding. (laughs) He's like, why are you hiding? What are you doing? And the whole point is they were hiding because they were ashamed of their sin. And that shame and that hiding made them be separate from one another, separate from God. It destroyed the covenant community that God had created there in the garden. Jesus kind of wades into this maze that the Pharisees and others had made. And this is what Dallas Willard said about this whole thing. He said, The core issue is this is about invoking something or someone else, especially God, to make your words seem significant and weighty. The aim is to impress others with your seriousness or piety so that you get what you want. It's a device of manipulation designed to override the judgment or input of others in order to possess them for our purposes. It's manipulation, or as we say in our culture, spin. And Jesus says it's evil. Instead of loving and honoring others with truthfulness, the intent is to get your way by verbal manipulation of the thoughts and choices of other people. This is the heart of this whole oath thing. And what's Jesus' hand solution? Yes is your yes, your no is your no. Simple honesty. Simple representation of what's true and real and authentic about who you are, what you do, where you're at. No airs. C.H. Spurgeon said this, that, that preachers should not put on airs, you know, like try to be something that you're not. Look, none of us need to do this. And, and this is where I want to wrap this up because um, this gets to the core issue that all of the things that Jesus is talking about here, all that he's going on is really this tragedy of, of the irony here in human community is that we really want to be known by other people. Don't you want to be known? Like, this is why, like, it's after COVID, right? Why are we here? Why are we not all just podcasting online, right? We're here because we want to be with people, because God made us relational beings. We want to be in community. But the problem that's hindering us from that is that we're hiding from each other this whole time. And so 
The reason we hide from each other is because of fear. Will you accept me if I really show you who I am? Will you reject me if I let you know my anger problems? Will you still love me if you see me as somebody with a struggle with lust? This is what breaks marriages, breaks families, all of these things, these icebergs sitting under the surface. What's the solution? Where can we get freedom? This is, we're talking about independence. Where can we get independence? Well, I believe we can get independence in, in two ways. First of all, turn to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John 4, verse 9. I'm going to read this. Now, I listened to another message this week, and I, I thought this was a great passage that I stole from somebody else. 1 John 4, verse 9 to 10. This is what we need to hear. This is the good news. Maybe it's been hard for you, like you're getting hit with your anger, you're getting hit with your lust, you're getting hit with your deceit, you're getting hit with your lack of faithfulness in your marital relationships. Here's the good news. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is his love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Then look in verse 18. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Do you want freedom from your anger? Do you want freedom from your lust? Do you want freedom from your broken relationships? Do you want reconciliation? Do you want freedom to be faithful in your marriage? How can we do this? We can do it when we realize how great this Messiah King Jesus really is. When we realize that he has seen all of your mess and all that it deserves from the wrath of God and he's put himself in the middle as the propitiation, the payment, The outpouring of the wrath goes on Jesus. And as that takes place, he expresses a love for you that's unreal. And he did that with a mess of people, a motley crew in his first community of his new disciples. He's doing that now. Look, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, your life is not based upon your own goodness. It's based upon Jesus Christ and his love for you. He loves you no matter where you have been and what you have done. And then in that love, you don't have to fear coming clean to him and coming clean to his community and and other people. You can be real. And when people aren't real, it's because they fear. When people won't talk about their issues, it's because of that. And they need to know, just like we finished with the oath, that God is not like twisting and turning and deceiving you. He's not saying, I love you, but maybe I won't. For Jesus, all the promises of God in Jesus Christ are yes and amen, 2 Corinthians. All of them. They will never change, never move, never be adopted into some other version that's, that's, that's not towards you. And so here's where I want to finish. I pray that God would give some of us freedom today. And I believe that freedom is expressed when we live in community. We don't live two parallel lives like the Pharisees, egotism for our kingdom, or like our country that lives separate lives and isn't unified. We live a unified life as God's people through the promises he's given us. And so I want to encourage you to have that freedom, express it in community, and then secondarily, 
I want to encourage you, if you are not yet a believer in Christ, look, um, this is not me, this is Jesus. And it's okay, we all know that you're an angry person. We all know that you are a lustful person. We all know that you have broken relationships. We all know, and God knows, that you have lied and been deceitful about who you are. Here's the good news of the gospel. You, your heart, you, like, you're always trying to find a way out of that and, like, and, and you know, just maintain some goodness. If you'll just admit it, God will say, I forgive you. I love you. Come be part of my crazy motley crew of people who experience my love, who experience freedom. That's my prayer. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for Jesus, your words in this passage. Thank you that this sermon is all about you being the king of your people. You giving us a righteousness, but then calling us to a righteousness. And please, Father, help us to really experience the freedom that comes from knowing that we have your righteousness because you love us and then experience the freedom that comes in living in your righteousness. I pray for good and flourishing and blessing on us as a church community, on marriages, on men and their struggles, on um, families, on uh, anger in our hearts. I pray for flourishing where we would be safe and real and good because you are good and real and safe and love us immensely. Father, help us to give our wholehearted devotion, all of our life, our bodies, our breath to you because you gave that same to us. I ask in your name, Jesus. Amen.